Hey, what's up? This is the intro to episode three, and it's a solo episode. There's no tart, and I'm messing with the format. I don't want to talk about anything current because I hate the world still. Like, uh, the, the situation that we're in, it's really horrible. It's really messed up. It's a masked society. I'm not talking about it too much. I want to talk about something timeless, something that nobody really cares about. You're going to want to turn this episode off now. We're not, we're going to start 30 seconds in to tell you what the topic of today's episode is. If you didn't read the description, I want to talk about the classic uh, piece of literature, uh, Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Toole. <clears throat> Sorry, enunciation. And before we move on to the meat of the episode, this timeless episode about Confederacy of Dunces, uh, A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Uh, Tart had one contribution for episode three, and she was talking about the racial breakdown of COVID-19 deaths, and apparently 28% of the deaths to date have been from Latinx people, uh, Latinx, of which I am a part of that group, but I don't identify. Uh, so Tart wants to let you know, uh, I'm all in with her here. Uh, if the Rona gets us, just please don't let them call us Latinx. I'd, I'd rather be white. If you don't know about it, it was a book. Uh, it was written in 19, it was published in 1980. It was written uh, years before that in the 60s by John K. Dole. And this is his posthumous novel. Uh, it is considered a classic of American literature. Uh, I believe it won a Pulitzer Prize. Yep, yeah, for fiction. Uh, it's very raucous, ribald tale. I was first introduced to it when I was in high school, and I fell in love with it because I just thought he was a really funny character. And then, I guess I sort of... The the, the protagonist, uh, Ignatius J. Radley. And this is going to go deep. This is like a literary literary analysis. You should already have read this novel. You should already know about it. I don't, shouldn't have to introduce you to this. So I'm not going to backtrack. I'm not going to apologize. I'm just going to keep on going ahead as if you already know uh, everything about this book and all these characters. Uh, but 1981 published, an ex- an ex- I read it when I was in high school, and then I went and lived my life as Ignatius J. Riley. And I didn't really realize that until I had to revisit the novel. Um, it was a sign reading to me to get out of community college and it was just an awakening for me because i realized like i'm older now than the author was when he killed himself and he thought he was a failure and it's like here i am a soul it's like i know i'm a failure and i'm here reading this book again and i was i mean as many years as everybody else in the class was the age that i was when i read it I'm twice their age, and I had to read this book again. It was just a bit soul-crushing. But I'm going to talk about it in two parts. I'm just going to sort of talk about, like, a. I want to pick apart one broad concept from it, and then I also just want to sort of pick and choose different characters and different themes and motifs in it that I really enjoyed. And this sounds like satire, but I swear to God, this is what the episode's about. So if you're, you're, you're not into this, just leave. Partly motivating and inspiring to do this was a um, piece today um, 
by Mary Pauline Lowry uh, in Lit Hub. She just brought it up again and it reminded me, like, oh, yeah, I, I got a lot of thoughts about that. I got a lot of material about that. I really loved it. Um, she calls them Ignatius bloviating. <laughs> and I think she was talking to, oh, boy, hold on. It was um, at a, she was at a literary conference and she asked Tommy Orange about his feelings for Confederacy dances because he loves it as well. And that was the word that came to them as bloviating. And uh, the, it's all paraphrased, but the reason everyone loves Ignatius is that he bloviates and every single one of us actually wants to bloviate too. Inside each of us is a bloviator. So shout out to Mary Pauline Lowry. So many of the characters of color. New Orleans. I mean, there actually is a statue, a bronze statue of Ignatius Riley uh, on Canal Street in New Orleans. I really want to visit it. I really want to visit Mardi Gras before this whole COVID-19 mess went down. But yeah, the bronze statue of his is him um, in the famous cover of the picaresque novel, you know, dressed in his flannel and his giant hunting cap and his scarf in his mustache uh, in front of the D.H. Holmes uh, department store. Man, I just want to... It's one of my life's goals. Going back to it and relating to it, having to reread it when you're so much older. I mean, all of his experience with the workforce is fated to end poorly. So that's relatable. Uh, I mean, him having entered the workforce so late in his life, having so much more experience in academia, He's not cut out for the blue-collar jobs that he's looking for. Uh, I mean, <laughs> not to say that he's overqualified, uh, because he's hardly qualified at all, if not uh, underqualified. I think at the core of the entire novel, though, is about his, his relationship with Myrna Minkoff. I want to talk about Myrna and Ignatius. I mean, he's the Ignatius is the central figure, but Myrna's is supposed to help us feel for him. I mean, this dude, everyone he crosses paths with, is <laughs> he's trouble. The sole exception, or the person who'll ignore it, apparently, is his girlfriend. Uh, I did bunny ears. And his uh, like ex-university cohort, uh, Myrna Minkoff. I love the alliteration as well. Uh, their correspondence with each other is via letters and telegrams. I mean, like today, that would be uh, communicating with a girlfriend via text message and Twitter. And their messages, each one of them you read in the novel, because they actually there is like a pause, and the novel gets a bit like a like epistolary to read this, their, their letters and telegrams to each other. Each time it just is to help you peel away the layers of the madness that's going on in the rest of the story. Gives the reader their best insight into like the pathos of these two nut jobs. Kind of remind me of, um, oh man, in Fight Club, the narrator and uh, Helena Bottom Carter's character. Just, they're off the wall. But their communications, and uh, every time she's around, Ignatius is like 
physical reactions to her, you can tell he likes her. Like it is written and it appears combative, but it's evident that like this is their twisted love. This is their version of love. This is like as lovely and as loving as these two toxic people can be to each other. They're meant for each other and not the world. Oh, up on modulated. Did you know I just brought like raw dog this? I don't have earphones on. I have no idea how loud I'm being. Until I listen back to it. And I'm not going to re-record it. So deal with it. Uh, Ignatius is rude to everyone <laughs> in this entire novel. It's part of it's what makes it so great. Like he really, everybody he interacts with. But like he's especially acerbic when he tears apart everyone he loves. It's like Myrna and uh, his mother is the other one who gets like the brunt of his hate. Uh, Freud, Freud would have loved this novel. I mean, his behavior totally falls in line with the proverb, like familiarity breeds contempt. Like he is stuck in the house, stuck with his mom, you know, dad's dead. Um, I mean the most, the, the other notable times that like anything gets a rouse out of him, like a visible, visceral reaction is when he reads, um, any letter murder writes to him. And there's numerous examples. Um, maybe if you want to agree with me, I'll just, I can cite the pages. Like pages 91, 92, 93, 226, 227, 315, 316. Um, I think I had those in there because I was actually going to go and read parts of the book, but I don't want to copy. I don't want to deal with that nightmare. But letters from Myrna, Ryle up Ignatius, and they act as catalysts for the major events in the novel. The other coin, the flip side of that, I mean, had John Kennedy Toole lived and been able to write a novel from Myrna's point of view, if not a proper sequel, uh, I I think all this was Myrna's intent. I mean, she is explicitly mentioned as his motivation when the narrative switches to his POV. Uh, when he's doing the epistolary, it's like um, Ignatius switches. He's like the omniscient narrator. He's like just that's when you get the real peek into his fractured psyche. But he's like describing his innermost thoughts in the form of his uh, big chief tablet scrawlings and um, like all of his odd jobs and causes he takes to throw the novel. They're just to like spite Myrna. He's not doing them for himself. Really? He's not really trying to earn money to pay off the restitution fees for the accident that he gets his mother into in the beginning of the novel. It's really just to like generate content, you know, like a vlogger who would cause trouble, you know, do it for the vlog, do it for the vine. That's all he's doing. Like Ignatius is out. He's just generating content for his next telegram to Myrna. And she appears to be working reciprocally. She's across the country in this. She's in New York in this novel. And you can't also wonder if she's just as sick as Ignatius and she's, how much of her communications are embellished as well. Like All right, we're gonna interrupt this episode with some ad read for uh Zyflex for Peroni's disease. That's right. Up to eighty five percent of your anxiety is in your penis and Peroni's disease means you get a bet donger. So if your hog is curving you can take on Peroni's disease with Zyflex, the only FDA-approved non-surgical treatment option. See safety info 
there is risk for a penile fracture. Like, do you screw around so hard and so often and so much that you curved up your massive hog? You might need Zyflex and you may have Peroni's disease. See your physician, primary care physician, general practitioner, uh, whomever. I don't know if this is covered under uh, Medicare for All. Maybe. It might be. Good luck with your curved hog. Examples of letters. In one of the first letters, page 91, the way Ignatius is his physical response. Like he snacks the letter out of her, out of his mother's hand. He takes the letter. He rushes to his room. He opens it so excitedly that he like tears it to shreds opening it. If that's not his depth, the expression of his care and concern for Myrna and like how much he cares about her ideas of him, then I don't know what is. I mean, like if he didn't care for her at all, you could argue that he wouldn't have bothered open the letter. It's he even wanted privacy while he's reading the letter. He shuts the door <laughs> while he reads her letter. And he's like audibly reacting while he's reading it. Um, I mean, when, when Myrna writes that tells Ignatius, she's pushing his buttons. She knows she's pushing buttons from across, from her thousand miles away. She writes that Ignatius needs the therapy of sex. He, he tells her like, Oh, unspeakably offensive. I mean, Myrna's correspondence is always caring and concern and pushing his buttons a little bit. And he's so, excited to reply it's like the only time in the novel he's motivated to do anything and he just and also the way he writes back to her is just so insulting too i mean like he he's it's defensive though he's like degrades her with a barrage of defensive insults but with ignatius you would also argue you wouldn't bother to insult or get riled up if he didn't care right because there's other examples of him in the novel not caring I mean, the guy just lays around his room and touches himself while thinking of his dead dog, apparently. Despite how coarsely they write to each other, you can still draw the conclusion that they have the fondness for each other. And I think the biggest supporting evidence is, um, it comes from the ancillary characters. Um, like his, uh, Ignatius's old university professor dr talc summates that the two deserve each other and he wondered if they ever joined in an unholy union that's where the the novel follows different characters at some points and it um goes to dr talc um miss annie his neighbor is eyewitness to ignatius and Miranda living together and she describes it herself she's like seemed like every night she and him was putting on a regular hoot nanny. Oh, she had to hear them. Also, the biggest shockers, or the, the biggest non-shocker, another relatable tidbit in the book, Miss Annie provides the insight as to the nature of their romantic relationship, and no surprise, Ignatius is a virgin. But all these letters, they just lead up to the end. I mean, it's, it's all like... I could go deeper about like cause and effect or uh, humanity and more general. Uh, but 
think the bit, the, the very end, at the novel's conclusion, I mean, like materna, uh, <laughs> materna, <laughs> Myrna, I want to use the word materializes, and I got ahead of myself. She just, uh, like a dos ex machina, she just appears at Ignatius's doorstep so fortuitously at his greatest moment of need. And uh, he's about to be committed at the very end. He's, and he's desperate to escape that fate of being committed to a charity hospital. And you think the reason why would he want to flee his entire lifestyle up to this point with someone that he despises? I mean, his biggest motivating factor may be just wanting to escape uh, being lobotomized, but when she shows up, he wants to leave with her. And it's evident, like all their vitriol and deprecation to each other is just like the most thinly veiled love and like in the end you're witness to their familiarity and even affectionate physicality towards each other he could be just buttering her up ignatius could be buttering up Myrna, but he doesn't think twice about putting his paws on her and that's how they're described in the book as well his hands are always calling paws uh puts her paws on her and he's actually kisses her braid uh, pigtail to his mouth so like they're crude insults so they're hurling each other throughout the whole book uh, over the you know via telegrams or in letters mean nothing when they're face to face compare that to twitter you just um, you know people out there just email um blog posts spewing garbage at each other but when they're face to face uh you got nothing to say to them yet nothing new but you know you know be civil Definitely gonna do this again. Other characters I, I would want to talk about and explore uh, more. Ignatius himself, that obsession with Boethius, that ideology that he clutches onto, uh, just like we all have something that we hold onto and clutch onto, some false hope or uh, God or belief system or or something. Uh, those are the characters I'd love to talk about, like the mother. I mean, she's interesting as well because clearly she's a, her proxy is uh, Ignatius or John Kennedy Duell's mother in real life who did all the work posthumously, all the heavy lifting, got his this novel published. Uh, the mother, I mean, she's only motivated to take action by her new friends. She does. She's she's like a blank slate until she gets Tamula Ross until she gets some friends. And all of her new friendships, like all they have in common is discussing Ignatius and his behavior. Uh, like when she meets a patrolman Mancuso and they leave their house, uh, she goes into Ignatius's room. After talking with patrolman Mancuso, she gives him the ultimatum to get him a job, which starts, kickstarts the plot of the novel. I mean, by the time that uh, like Santa Patalia's party comes around later in the novel, Ignatius has had like two separate jobs and neither one of them was uh, distinguished enough or paid enough to please his mother. Uh, so like uh, Mrs. Riley says to her friend Santa Batalia, she wishes Ignatius had been arrested by Mancuso because then he would have been safe and locked up in jail. Uh, I mean, there's just so many other things. Even, even the fact that he spent so much of his time in academia. Uh, someone else suggests to Mrs. Riley 
that uh, Ignatius may be a communist because he went to school for too long, because they got plenty of communists in them colleges. So she goes home and she asks Ignatius, are you sure you're not a communist? So things like that, other characters. Uh, there's so many, so much color in this. And then there's the, um, oh boy, what's her name? Is it Miss Trixie? She works at the, um, one of Ignatius's jobs and she's so old and senile and like she's showing up to work tattered up in her, her night robe, things like that. God, I love this. And we can take some other angles, but, uh, thanks for listening to this little mini solo episode. Uh, Tart's going to be back next week. Probably way more entertaining. Not so much of a what lit analysis. Like, what is this? Get out of here. I mean, I'm probably going to do another episode about this novel. About these characters. So many more things to talk about. There's a, apparently a movie that's just been in post-production hell. Uh, based on his a biography of his, The Butterfly and the Typewriter. It's actually a film adaptation of that biography. And I have the biography. I need to read it. So I've got to come back to you with more material. I mean, I can. I got to talk about the biography. I'm going to compare the biography to the film once it's released. There's been stage productions of this. Um, one of them actually had a... Oh, but what's his name? Nick Offerman. I mean, there's, there's a lot more. And I do believe there's also more than one biography I mean the only thing that I'm going to stop at I'll just go short of doing like actual uh, primary research and like finding letters that his mother had written or things that John Kenny Toole had written I won't go that far but I'll get you if you want to talk this I mean get my DMs I'll talk about this all day